Hope you've been seeing here at the uh, latter part of our, our uh, music in our, in our service here that we have been developing this theme of worship and even the song that Brant has just sang for us about life song and how my life is an act of worship. All of that really is the focus of our teaching time as we are uh, in this new series called Blueprints. And we introduced this last week and we said that uh, we are really walking through the core values of our church and who we are as a congregation. And uh, last week we began with the foundation of the house. We began with uh, the, 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 the true person who holds this whole thing up. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. His person, his work, the glorious nature of his deity, his full humanity, the wonder of his incarnation, the glory of what he did in coming to earth, the wonder that he would uh, live a perfect life, fulfill the law, die in our place on a Roman cross, God placing our guilt upon him, dying in our place, dead for three days, resurrected on the third day, ascended to heaven, declared now to be Savior and Lord, and that all who believe and trust will be saved. This gospel, this good news, is the foundation of the church. And that's not just because I say it or we say it as a church. It's because God's word makes it very clear that the church is about Christ. It is built upon, it is built upon him. And so as we begin to talk about who we are as a church, we began with Christ. He is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning of the discussion. He's the end of the discussion. And in many ways, he is all of the discussion. Now, we're playing on the, the name of our church with this, this Bethel name, which means in Hebrew, house of God. And we're talking about uh, this home, the, the home that, that we desire to be as a, as a church. And so today, uh, we're walking through the house in this series, and today we are walking into the living room. We're walking into the living room. Uh, now, this is a... a a bit of a metaphor here, actually, because uh, by living, what we really want to talk about is what living is as a Christian, which is an act of worship, like the song that was just sung, life song, sing to you. That is what we're getting at here today. And it's ironic to me, uh, the, the metaphor of living room, because I think in most homes, the living room is, other than the dining room, is probably the least used room in the house. Now, some of you, if you have a living room, or the, like my, my, my friend that growing up, they had a living room and nobody was allowed to go in there. That's where all the nice furniture was. And so I would go to their house and I remember once or twice walking through the, the living room to get into the kitchen area and it felt naughty. Uh, to, to even be in there because it was such a, a, a like a safe zone. We don't, it's the living room. We don't actually live there. And uh, this, I think, provides actually a fairly accurate theological picture of the way that many people view worship, where it is a room in the house of my life that I go to perhaps once a week, and I walk in there, and I have my little faith expression, I live out my little faith thing, and then I walk the rest of the time of my week in the rest of the house to do the things that, uh, that, that I want to do. And what we find the Bible teaching is exactly the opposite of that. 
For those who are Christians, for those who have, for those of us who have given our lives to Christ, who believe that Jesus is our, is our Lord, he is our Lord, not just on a Sunday or not just at a service, but he is our Lord all the time, everywhere. So that in, in, in the metaphor, it'd probably be more accurate to say that the whole house ought to be a living room. Life is worship as a Christian, and that is what I want to develop with you and to talk with you, because I would say, other than the foundation that Christ is, that Christ is the, 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 the truth that all of life is worship, at least to me, and in my teaching and what I have endeavored to do here, this would probably be uh, the, uh, the, the, the second most wonderful, transformational, sacred truth that I have had the privilege of uh, teaching on over the years. And so in one message, we're going to try to just nail that down once again and to remind our hearts about what life really is to be like and who it is to be, who it is to be lived for. Now, to do that, there are so many verses in the Bible that we could turn to, uh, but we're just going to, we're going to, we are going to turn to a few others, but here is our main passage tonight. Uh, it's, as many of you know, it's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. So turn to 1 Corinthians with me, and some of you probably are like, I know where he's going. Now, maybe it's on the screen, that, that could help, but uh, 1 Corinthians, any guesses which chapter? Chapter 10, any guesses which verse? Somebody said 31, and that is exactly right. You know, the price is right is coming to Northwest Indiana, and whoever said that, it might, you might want to go to that, because you're right, that's exactly right. You have not gone over. By one penny. First Corinthians, or verse for that matter. First Corinthians 10.31 is our verse. Many of you know this verse. I'm calling this a verse for everything. It is a verse for everything. It summarizes in one statement the sum of the entire Christian life. Here is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now that's so short, I can read it again. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now the context here in chapter 10 is that these, this Corinthian church, uh, among many other things that they did not get along about, one of the things that they were embattled and dividing over was the whole matter of whether or not it was appropriate for Christians to eat meat that had been sacrificed to the God of the Corinthians, Aphrodite. If it was okay to buy that in the marketplace and to cook it up and to eat it. And some of the Christians who had formerly worshipped in the temple... Their consciences were weak on this, on this, and so they said, no, Christians should never do that. And there were other Christians who their consciences weren't weak, they were strong in this regard, or they didn't have the background, or uh, they came from a Jewish background, whatever it might be, and they didn't care. And so they were uh, frying it up, all, all the more the better. And so the, the Christians were battling over this, and Paul writes chapter 10 to, to try to settle this matter, and basically he says, listen, you Corinthians— there are more important issues than what kind of meat you're eating. 
and you need to love one another. And unity is more important than where the meat came from in the supermarket. And so he gets to the end here of this little teaching section, and he summarizes the whole thing by saying, whether you eat or drink, whether you eat meat sacrificed to idols or not, drink, or whatever you do, there is one overarching priority that trumps all the other matters and concerns and all the other petty little things that might somehow, you know, people get fired up about. The most important thing of anything is that whatever you do, you do it to the glory of God. That is the biggest priority. And that is the one goal that we must have. Now, in doing this, what Paul is doing is he is essentially providing for us a definition of what it means to live a life of worship. So let's talk about two key words here, glory and worship. He says here that we are to live to the glory of God. Glory is a word, it means, it literally means like weight or weightiness. Or some of you that maybe, uh, like me, graduated from high school in the 80s, and that would be the 1980s, if some of you are wondering, uh, you will recall that it was kind of cool maybe to say about something, you say, oh man, that's heavy. Whoa, that's heavy, dude. And that was really cool to say uh, back in the 80s, the 1980s. And, uh, or, or maybe we would say something, and even to, contemporarily we'll say this, that that's a, that's a very weighty matter, Right? Now, in both cases, what is the word insinuating? It is insinuating that for something to be, to be heavy, the heavier it is, the weightier it is, the more important it is. And glory is a, is a word like that. It is a word that says this, for something to have glory, it is something that is really important. Now, worship is essentially the acknowledgement of the weightiness of something. It is to revere. It is to, the psalmist says, ascribe glory. It is to acknowledge. It is to, uh, to praise. It is to, uh, to bow, to surrender, to, to acknowledge that this is weightier than I am. Worship is the acknowledgement of glory. So since these two are essentially two sides of the same coin. When we look at 1 Corinthians 10, 31, uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Essentially what this is, is a statement that Christians ought to, in everything that we do, we ought to worship. To ascribe glory to God. Now, this is not hard for us to do in one sense, because all human beings, we are essentially worship machines. The human heart searches and longs for something to ascribe a kind of transcendent and ultimate glory to. And so, it doesn't matter what culture you go to, what part of the world that you go to, everywhere you find worship. Now, some of that worship is religious, and so we have shrines and temples and churches and cathedrals and all the rest. But the human heart and worship is not limited to the divine. 
In fact, I would say most actual expressions of worship are what we find in more contemporary culture. There's more worship to be found in Monday night's Bears game, what I would call actual worship, Monday night's Bears game, than unfortunately many churches and no doubt some of us here tonight. The kind of fervor and the kind of ascribing of importance that's going to happen at Soldier Field on Monday puts many Christians to shame, and I hope you're not one of them. Now, do you know what I mean by that? The typical Bears fan goes to the game, and there they are, and they have spent hours getting ready for it, right? Some people show up hours in advance just to be in the vicinity of the temple, right? And they make brats and burgers and different things, just anticipating the opportunity to step into the temple where their ultimate value is found. And they go into Soldier Field, and there it is, the, the altar. And it's horned on both sides. It's a horned altar. And the things that are going on in there matter so much to them that depending on what happens there, they leave there either with joy or sorrow in their heart. And it takes them days to get over it. Right? And as they are there, they are joyous or sorrowing. They are engaged. They are uh, buying beverages that help them be engaged with the activities on the field. The human heart desperately needs worship. It needs something greater than itself. And so we run around after all of these things that we perceive are valuable or somehow that we can identify with and look in the mirror and think, I matter because I'm connected to this. And if that this is a, is a pile of money or it's a degree from the right college or it's something on the door of my office, or it's a car in the garage, or it's my children, or it's, it's my uh, reputation, or it's a sense of success, or ultimately, frankly, most of it is me, self. All of these are an ascribing of weightiness to something with which I can find identity and ultimately find meaning. That is worship. And the human heart does that all the time and does it around the world. And everybody's doing it and searching for it. Something ultimate, something that I can live my life for, somebody that I can have identity with. So 1 Corinthians 10.31 says that whatever we do, and the we there, by the way, he's not writing to the pagan Corinthians, he is writing to the Christian Corinthians, Whatever we do, Christians, followers of Jesus, there is an ultimate reality that we can do all those things and more and better, namely God. Do what you do to and for the glory of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God the Father who sent the Son and the Spirit, the triune God, the God who has loved us in Christ. In fact, in some ways, if you really think about it, why on earth would Christians give this worship and glory to anything when the most wonderful person in reality in the world has loved us in Christ? 
Why do we settle for the lesser things? As C.S. Lewis said, we're like children playing in the mud uh, and with no concept of what it means to have a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that is why one of the saddest things to see is somebody who comes to church and sings songs like we just did and then leaves here and lives for the things that the world values because there is no ultimate meaning in those things. This world is passing away. But our God is forever. Live for him, live for his glory. And this is what Christians have endeavored to do for uh, really since uh, the beginning. In fact, uh, 400 years ago, there was a uh, famous Christian statement of faith that was uh, produced known as the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Catechism. So if you were to write an entire systematic theology, what would be your starting point? Or a catechism, which is basically a confession in Q&A form, what would be the very first question that you would ask? And we could probably poll the audience right now and we'd get a lot of interesting things. I think we'd, who was God? Or what was the nature of Jesus? Or, you know, is the Bible inspired? Maybe something like that. Here's what the Westminster Catechism began with. Question number one. What is the chief end of man? Now that is old English, the chief end of man. Old English basically saying, what is man's ultimate purpose? Or we might say it today, why are we here? Imagine if you walk the streets of our community or go by the mall and ask people, hey, can I ask you a question? Why are you here? They say, well, there's a sale at Kohl's and I was trying to, no, 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 no. Like, ultimately, why are you here? Imagine the blank stares of people. And does that fact not explain why there is so much despair and so much emptiness in the community around us? We don't know why we're here. And if we don't know why we're here, we don't know who we are. And if we don't know who we are, we certainly don't know where we're going. And this is why the human heart longs for answers, and maybe it's why God brought you into this building today. Searching for answers your heart longs for. The Bible has an answer. And these writers of this confession, here's how they answered that question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, what I want to do is I want to I share with you, out of my own story, what a difference this has made in my life and how God brought me uh, to treasure this truth in, in my own life. So many of you know that my background, I grew up in a, a wonderful home, a, a godly home. I grew up in a Christian home. Um, and I grew up in a, in a kind of Christianity that was very strong on, I would say, ev evangelism, mostly, as long as that evangelism was largely a kind of a, a, a prayer of faith to God and belief in Jesus, and many people were saved, myself included, as a result of that, and I'm profoundly thankful for it. Very light on discipleship the living of the Christian life. Most of what the living of the Christian life was, 
was things that good Christians do not do. And there was a list of these uh, that uh, were, they hung on a banner in the front of the church. Actually, they didn't, but it was almost like that. Because everybody kind of knew what they were, even though it went largely unsaid. Although, actually, much of it was said, particularly to the youth group, uh, I might add. So, uh, it seemed like it was like, come to Jesus and then wait to die to go to heaven. That is Christianity. With the exception of many of these, I would call them superficial kind of rules that weren't necessarily found in the Bible or grounded in the Bible, uh, but were just things that good Christians didn't do. Well, so I grew up in that oldest child, compliant oldest child. Do we have any other compliant oldest children that are here, right? We towed the line. We looked disparagingly down upon our younger siblings who did not feel the same compulsion to please mom and dad. So any other perfect children here? With the, can I see those hands again? Okay. All right. Self-righteous to the max, are we not? Totally. So... I went to college, felt called to ministry, went on to seminary, studied all the things you study in seminary. And in my mid-20s, I was really finding that kind of Christianity very shallow and superficial and really not that exciting. I, want, I was looking for something deeper, or maybe now looking back on it, I was, I was maybe even subconsciously wanting something that would unite a unity in my life. All right, maybe I didn't even know I needed it, but looking back on it, I desperately needed it. So it was in my mid-20s that somebody suggested to me that I ought to read a book, and I have the book right here. This is the book that was suggested to me. And the name of the book is Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist by John Piper. And maybe many of you have read this, I don't know. But I began to read this book, and I got to tell you, I really did not like it. Because it was basically saying this, that God's, the, God's purposes in everything that he does is the glory of God. Now, to my way of thinking, the God that I sort of understood him to be and all the things that he did were activities uh, generally focused on the redemption of mankind. Maybe you throw in there a little bit of uh, beat down on Satan and some of that kind of stuff, but largely, my, my understanding of, of Scripture and God was that God was more for and about me and the church and salvation and Jesus came to save me and and and. You know what? All of that is true. But what I came to, I first of all really did not like it, and then I sort of warmed to it, and then I began to see it everywhere in the Bible, and ultimately I embraced it, and I've been teaching it for 15 years here, basically, is that God really is about the glory of God, and that my part in this and the role of the church is secondary it is glorious, it is wonderful, but it is not ultimate. That ultimately, in the grand scheme, the big picture, that God is displaying 
and magnifying the glory of himself primarily by unveiling the glory of the Son. Now, if you get your, hand, your, 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 your mind around that, you realize that 1 Corinthians 10.31 is not simply something that man does or ought to do, Christians, but is actually what God does. That whatever God does, whether he creates the world or whether he sends the flood or whether he uh, inspires scripture or whether he allows Satan to have his little thing here for a couple thousand years or whether he establishes the church or whether he sends the spirit at Pentecost or whether he saves somebody in our service tonight, that all of that is done by God ultimately to magnify his name. God could sing the song that we sang in this service. So let your name be lifted higher, be lifted higher, be lifted higher. He would say it, so let my name be lifted higher. Now you say, now how can that be? It seems kind of egocentric for God to live for his glory. If you're God, if you don't live for your glory, who else is worthy of it? Who is greater than God? In fact, would it not be a sin for God not to do what he does for his glory? Would that not be a kind of blasphemy if he was in some way suggesting that we or planet Mars is more worthy of glory than him in his ultimate glory? God does what he does for his glory, not to magnify man, but to magnify himself. And once I got over the shock of that, you begin to read scripture from what I would call a more God-centered perspective, and you start to see it everywhere. And I just want to just give some samples of God being for the glory of God that we find in Scripture. Here are some Old Testament samples. Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your might. Isaiah 48, 11, God says this, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Ezekiel 36, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So the outworking of God's saving works towards mankind we find in the Old Testament primarily in covenantal relationships that he establishes, first of, all, uh, first of all, with Adam and then with Noah and then with Abraham and then his descendants and then with David. And we see then these redemptive uh, covenantal relationships that God establishes, which he is doing to save mankind from our sins, but ultimately to bring glory to himself and to magnify his love and his mercy. So we get to the New Testament, and now it's all over the place, right? Here's some examples. 
Right from the beginning, Matthew chapter 1, the angels show up and declare that Jesus is going to come, and what do they say? Glory to Mary in the highest. Glory to the wise men in the highest. Glory to Herod in the highest. No, it is glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth. God's glory is found in Jesus. John 5, he only did what pleased the Father. He is sent by the Father to earth. Jesus says in John 17 that his aim was to glorify the Father. Jesus perfectly fulfilled 1 Corinthians 10.31. Everything he did was for the glory of God. And the Father delighted in the Son. That beautiful scene at Jesus' baptism where he comes out of the water and a voice thunders from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father delighting in the Son. We see God's glory described in man's salvation. Romans 4, that salvation is by faith built upon the promises of God. This magnifies God's ability to save in that we are saved by merely trusting him. Not doing, not acting, not somehow manufacturing it, but simply believing. Faith. Ephesians 1 That repetition in that long sentence there at the beginning of Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glory, God does these things. All of salvation to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Romans 4, that faith in Jesus glorifies God. And here's some other just like everything for God's glory examples. 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, speaking of the pagans, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Romans 11, love this verse. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Now you just meditate on that one verse tomorrow. And that's just a, that's a verse for everything, isn't it? To him be glory forever. Amen. And then Revelation 5, which we uh, looked at and are all about him weekend. That picture of God the Father on the throne and then the Lamb coming and taking the scroll out of the right hand of God, Jesus there, pictured, unveiling and opening that scroll, enacting the judgments of God, this picture of final consummation. And all of creation gathers around the throne and offers praise. And what do they say? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I would say up to the point that I read this book and began to think about these things, I thought God primarily did what he did for us. And you know what? He does do what he did. I mean, we obviously are the massive beneficiaries of what God has done for us. But to realize that deeper in God's purposes was his glory. And I just got to say, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of man-centered gospel preaching that I think people probably can go to heaven with. If you believe that Jesus died for you, truly, you understand the gospel and you repent of your sins and believe, I, I think that you can be saved. But the fruit of man-centered gospel and man-centered teaching and ministry is very immature Christians. And churches that are filled with immature Christians, it's like a giant nursery. Go to our nursery right now, and you will find 
many individuals who think it's all about them. And so you have crying, and you have sobbing, and you have beating of one another in the children, not nursery so much, but it's slightly older probably, and, and, and you see them just doing whatever they do. Why? Because it's about me. And when those people grow up in that kind of mentality, that's a church you don't want to be a part of. And it's certainly not the church that we want to be. We want the more rigorous, the deeper, the more glorious, the mature understanding of the big picture of what God is doing. And me finding my place not not at the top, but as a part, a glorious part, with God at the top. That's what we want. God is centered in what he is doing, and his loving actions towards us magnify not us. I I read a quote uh, recently. The fact that God's, see if I come up with the fact that God loves us doesn't mean that we are valuable. We are valuable because God loves us. Does that sound right? I don't know. If that was heresy, I apologize because I'm sort of befuddled right now as I think about it be best to move on. Let's do so. <laughs> to me, here is, here's a verse that most Christians can quote by heart, but haven't really thought about it. To me, this is a, a wonderful God-centered statement of salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, just think about that, for by grace, you've been saved. Just that statement alone. Have we merited it? Is it about us? Is it somehow we've, we're good people and we, God was wise and we're valuable because he's worked this for no it's grace to us you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing the faith is not your own doing what does it say it is the gift of God not as a result of works and the fruit of that in any biblical church so that no one can boast where's the pride in Ephesians 2 8 9 Where's the individual that understands that verse who in some way thinks in the church, look at me, I'm important, blah, blah, blah. We're not. This is not about us. It is the glory of God to save us. And when sinners get that, it is so wonderful to realize that I am an object of God's love because he loved me when I didn't love him. And if he loved me when he didn't love when I didn't love him or Romans 8:32 if he gave us his son how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things and to get the glory of the greatness of God and the majesty and the glory of who he is and to understand how small I am in relationship to that but then to get that in spite of my smallness and my wickedness and my sinfulness God loved me anyway and by his grace has saved me. This does not produce pride, it produces humility. In fact, friends, that's how you can know somebody that understands the gospel. There is a gospel humility that graces their life, and no one does it perfectly, and we all have our moments of stupidity, right? But generally, there's a sense of I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. And a church that gets that, that's the kind of church that we want to be. Okay, And from that then flows a life of worship 
flowing from the reality of who God is and my relationship with him. All right, so back to our living room, and I want to give a very simple guide to how to live to the glory of God. Okay, a lot of people say, oh yeah, live to the glory of God. How do I do that? Like, what does that mean exactly? So to that end, let's review our verse. Whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, I want to supplement that verse with another verse, a much beloved verse. If you don't have this memorized, I encourage you to memorize it this week. Romans 12, verse 1. Here's what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, everything that Paul's written in chapters 1 through 11, this clear, deep explanation of the gospel, in view of God's mercy towards us, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, the imagery there hails back from the Old Testament, where they would take the lamb, or they would take the goat, or the bull, or whatever it was, and they would lay the, 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 the bull, the goat, on the altar. It would be a sacrifice offered to God. Now, notice what we're called. Somewhat thankfully, we're called living sacrifices. Now, if you take that word living out of there, our services become radically different, don't you think? I think so. So let's be glad that the word living is in there that you offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So the imagery there then is that if, if, my, if my life, if there's an altar, I am offering, I'm crawling up voluntarily on the altar and I'm offering all that I am uh, in sacrifice to God. That's the picture. Now I remember, I think it was Chuck Swindoll who said about living sacrifices, you know the problem with living sacrifices? They tend to crawl off the altar. And how true that is, right? Because right now, here in this service, I'm sure that if we metaphorically had the altar and said, who here is laying all on the altar here, we all would crawl up, yes, yes, I want to live for the Lord. But guess what? You're about to leave here. And that is the point that I want to get across, is that the Christian life is entirely an act of worship. And that the uniting core, the integrating reality and truth for the Christian is that God is at the center of my life and who he is shapes and permeates all of my life so that there is not an aspect of my life that cannot be lived as a sacrifice to God. Now, I don't know if you get that, but if you do, it's a really exciting truth that I can be a fireman to the glory of God. I can be a mama to the glory of God. I can be a dude working out at the gym to the glory of God. I can be a father in the home to the glory of God. I can do my art to the glory of God. I can watch a movie to the glory of God. I can run laps to the glory of God. I can eat strawberry pie. Or I see a woman sitting right here who makes the best rhubarb pie in all the world, except for my grandma Jackson. May she rest in peace. (laughs) Rhubarb pie to the glory of God and all the other pleasures as well. It's so exciting. It's like it's like the you know the the veil comes away and we see in the world around us now a massive 
worship service that I now am engaging in and every aspect of my life can be done to the glory of God. How? How do I do that? Let's talk about it. Well, God-centered, God-glorifying orientation is essentially the restoration of the fall. If we go back in the story, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, prior to that, they lived everything to the glory of God. They saw the sunset to the glory of God. They ate the strawberry rhubarb pie to the glory of God. Uh, Eve swept the, the, the front porch to the glory of God. Adam named the animals to the glory of God. They were naked to the glory of God, <laughs> which is a whole other interesting thing to think about why we feel nakedness, which I think does relate to the whole thing of the glory of God, but that's a whole nother message. But now I have your attention. <laughs> but when Adam and Eve sinned, essentially what happened, the altar of their heart, God was displaced. And squarely upon the altar of Adam's heart was Adam. And upon the altar of Eve's heart, or the throne, maybe you could look at it that way, the, three, the throne of Eve's heart was Eve. And from that point on, we all are dead in our sins, selfish to the core. Salvation is the restoration of what was lost in the fall. And growth in the Christian life is the increasing integration of who I am as a Christian and the will and word of God into every aspect of my life, which is an exciting proposition. Now here's why we do all to the glory of God and why worship is the uniting center. Just to put up a very simple graphic here that illustrates it, what, what I'm saying here and what I think the Bible teaches is that for the Christian, God is the center his glory, maybe you could say the glory of God is the center. And everything, every component of my life is lived outwardly from that and in terms of worship, inwardly to that. So that I am striving in my relationships to do those to the glory of God. That I am doing the very best that I can with my family to live to the glory of God. My home as a kind of temple to the glory of God, that when I am at work, I am not forgetting who I am. I am living out who I am at work, and I am working as unto the Lord. And every other thing that you could put up there in life, that God is at the center of it. That little chart right there would radically alter many of our lives if we could faithfully live it out. It's all about God. Or as I like to say, everything is theology. Everything is theology. Everything in some way relates to this integrating unity, which is God. So how do we live to the glory of God in all of these different components? I have, I have four ways, okay? Four directions if you want to look at four priorities. First of all, we live to the glory of God when we live these dimensions of our life in the way that God wants us to live them. Now, there is a word for this in the Bible. It's the word obedience. I remember uh, as a child, we'd sing O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. -E. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. 
I, I missed a few notes there, but that, as I recall, that's how it went, right? Obedience. God's word is God's will. So when I am wanting to live to the glory of God, I am going to do the very best that I can to live these various aspects in the way that God has said they ought to be lived. So a Christian marriage is one that is being, is being maritally the way that God wants it uh, to be. Children, how do you be children to the glory of God? God's word has something to say about that, mostly obedience, but other things as well, honoring your father and mother, etc. And the parents said, and the children said, <laughs> silence. Uh, but this is important. It is never God's will for you to disobey his word. He is never glorified by sin. He is never honored by disobedience. So at the bottom line, the very first step is that I'm doing what I'm doing in the way that God wants it to be done. And he's given us his word to explain that and the application of it. Secondly, I am doing what I'm doing with God's goals in mind. Now here's where we get to more of the motivation for why I'm doing what I'm doing because the Bible says, Matthew 6, that I am to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that when I am, when I am involved in some category of my life, that what I'm wanting in that category is I'm wanting God's glory. Now, sometimes it's harder to do that than others, but in the broad sense, do you know what I'm saying? Where I am involved in this, I'm doing this, or maybe it's better to do it the opposite. I'm not doing this for vainglory. I'm not doing this to exalt myself. That I'm doing the things that I'm doing in a manner and a way where my motivation for the doing of it, as best I can, and again, no, none of us are perfect with this, as best I can, for the Lord. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had counted, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. To live to God's glory is basically to ask, how can I do my part to accomplish God's goals in the world, which is the glorification of him in my life, in my family, in my church? A godly man or woman pursues this, is what I'm saying. Now, that's a little hard to discern at times, is it not? Because our hearts are always these convoluted, confusing contradictions. Even Paul says that in Romans 7. When I go to do good, their evil is right beside me. Many people who gather today to do Bethel on a mission probably, uh, you know, had all kinds of different feelings in the doing of it. Whenever we do it, coming to church, there's all mixture of motives and all that, and our self is always there somewhere nearby. But in Christ and by the Spirit, it is the, it is a, we, are, we are given a new heart and a capacity to pursue God's goals. Thirdly, we, we live to God's glory when we enjoy his pleasures. In fact, this is something that Piper does in his book where he says, the chief end of man is to glorify God, the catechism says, and enjoy him forever. Piper changes it to say, by enjoying him forever. That God is glorified in us when we are delighting and satisfied in him. And so, as we live our life, we experience all of these various pleasures and happinesses. I've already mentioned rhubarb pie as one of those, uh, and there are many others. But when we enjoy God's pleasures on earth, 
One of the great things that we have the opportunity to do is to turn those happy moments into worship. So I watch the sunset and I think to myself, wow, that is a beautiful red color. Or do I think, think of what God did to make that. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. So when I look up and I see the majesty of the, of the skies, in fact, I read, a, I, I read a statistic. I read a statistic that said, is there, are there more sand, is there more sand in the sea or more stars in the, in the galaxies? And they did all these mathematical equations, and they determined that there are more stars in the sky than sand on all the seashores of the world. And they said, but you could put all of the stars in the sky into four, in, in terms of molecules into four droplets of water. That's how many molecules and all. It just blows the mind to think all of that. But think of, the, think of the creative genius of God and how he did that and what that, and all of that is saying something about him. So as Christians, we have the opportunity to live to, for, for God's glory when we enjoy the pleasures and the good things in this world, not for their own sake, so that the atheist can look up in the sky and go, there's a lot of stars up there. Wow. That is, look at all those stars, how much time and chance it must have taken for all of those to somewhere up here and perfectly revolve around one another in a certain mathematical sequence that is amazingly precise. Wow. It's amazing. Or the same scientist can look up in the sky and say, you know what? The size and the scope of that sky says something about God and to enjoy him in it. And all of the pleasures that we involve in this world, I would say the good ones, are intended by God to communicate to us through natural revelation what he is like. And the Christian who's living to the glory of God experiences these things not for their own sake or not in isolation, but rather as a theologian. And one of the visions that we have here is that all of us are theologians, and we live our lives as theologians, and we experience things as theologians. In other words, we experience them for God's sake and turn those moments of pleasure into a kind of joy and happiness. Now, I don't know if you have any joy and happiness in me saying that or in this sermon at all tonight, but I would hope that maybe you would. Now, some of you, I'm looking on your faces, and you don't express it very well, frankly, and I wish that you would because... I believe this truth, if applied, would enrich your life in ways you can't even believe. I believe that with all my heart. I do. To walk out of here as a theologian and to say, God, I want to enjoy this world and all the good things in it for your sake. And to give him glory by thanksgiving and praise and acknowledgement and all these different ways to do it. Enjoying God in everything. As C.S. Lewis said, praise is joy's appointed consummation. How true. Finally, is this, is simply for who God is. We glorify God when we live for him, not simply what he can do for us. Do you have somebody in your life maybe that's like this, right? They come around only when they need something, and, and you feel like you're being played a little bit, maybe? Like, I think he's not really that interested in me. He just likes my tractor or my pickup. We don't like that, do we? God doesn't like it either. When we simply hang around God so that we maybe can get a little bit of his good fortune towards us, God is not honored by that. 
He is honored when we love him, not for his blessings, but for who he is, for the majesty of who he is. In fact, can I say this? If God had never done a single thing for us, if he had never sent Jesus, if he had never provided salvation, if he had never given eternal life, if he had never sent his spirit, if he never gave us one word of revelation, if he never gave us the church, if there was never a pretty sunset, if we never had one friendship in our life, if we never ate one piece of rhubarb pie or ever experienced any other pleasure, he would still be worth every praise and glory that we could give him. We do not worship him simply for what he has done, although we certainly do. We worship him because he is God. He is the ultimate reality. He is the ultimate being. He is who our hearts long for. We were made for him. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So we love him for he is God. We serve him purely for the glory and wonder of who he is. And he delights in us when we do that. And when we do that, when we, we do what we do for the right motivations, and we, and we experience the things of this world for his sake, and when we are uh, uh, involved in, in corporate worship for his glory, and when we are people that in our week, in our home, in our job, in our school, we're living to God's glory, what this does then is it keeps the living room of worship from being a compartment in my life. It turns my whole house into a living room of worship. It is living to the glory of God. And that's the kind of church that we have strove to be. That's the kind of church that we will always strive to be by God's grace. It's the kind of pastoral guidance that I want to give to this congregation. For each of us, myself included, increasingly to worship. And for my whole life, my whole life, everything in me, to be done to his glory. A local church built on the foundation of Jesus, doing what it does to bring maximum glory to God, that is a church that will please him. So whether we eat or drink, sing or pray, serve and love, or whatever we do, let us endeavor to do it to the glory of God as our act of worship to him, our reasonable act of worship to him. For from him and through him and to him all things. To him be the glory, both now and forevermore. And the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. And would you stand and join with me in this prayer.